one of the biggest things that all of us carry around are assumptions and our implicit biases that we carry. Whether we know they're there or we don't know they're there is something. As nurses, I think we need to be reflective of this. I'm going to bring back that reflective practice that we should all be doing as nurses. Welcome to Radical Nurse Talk, a podcast that explores nurses' communication in serious situations and illness as a radical act of care. I'm your host, Patricia Strachan. My pronouns are she and her. People who identify as 2SLGBTQ often experience particular challenges when they require care for serious illness or find themselves in a serious health-related situation. The conversation that follows exposes some of these challenges, encouraging each of us to look inward and ask, how can we be inclusive, build trust, and bring dignity to care conversations for people who identify as 2SLGBTQ? My guest is Dr. Erin Sigler. Her pronouns are she and her. She's an assistant professor in the Daphne Cockwell School of Nursing at Toronto Metropolitan University, where she teaches in the nurse practitioner program. She's a primary healthcare nurse practitioner and clinical lead of a transgender primary care program with Queen's Square Family Health Team. She is the chair of the Nurse Practitioner Association of Ontario Rainbow Community of Practice and the Provincial Course Professor for the Advanced Health Assessment and Diagnosis course with the Ontario Primary Healthcare Nurse Practitioner Program and faculty member with the Canadian Centre for Advanced Practice Nursing Research. Her research focuses on exploring barriers and facilitators to accessing healthcare within the 2SLGBTQ population, nursing education and advanced practice nursing. She co-developed the online e-learning toolkit, Sexual Orientation and Gender Identity Nursing, which we'll talk about later, and that aims to improve nurses and healthcare providers' understanding of cultural humility when caring for 2SLGBTQ individuals. Welcome, Erin. What a lot of wonderful accomplishments. Um, It's so great to have you here. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So you've made so many needed and important contributions to make experiences with healthcare better for people who identify as 2SLGBTQ. And our focus today is on how our communication can make their experiences and care better. Uh, not just in times of uh, serious illness, but other serious situations and also in general practice. Um, I'm wondering how it was that you came to focus on this much neglected area of practice. I think it really came down to a patient experience that I had where I've always been very focused on my patients and being there for my patients. I was a pediatric nurse for a very long time before I was a nurse practitioner and uh, working with families. um, It was always about 
everybody. You have your patient, but then you have everybody else who's in the room. And so for me, it was always about everybody. It was not just about the patient. And so um, I remember having uh, an experience where there was some chitter chatter at the nursing station about a family that wasn't a typical family. And it really bothered me that it was such a gossipy topic at the nurse's station. And as a new nurse, um, I was very young in my career. Um, It really bothered me for two reasons. It bothered me first that it was a gossip. Why do we have to gossip about this family? Um, And then it bothered me internally because I didn't do anything about it. Um, I didn't feel that I, as a new nurse, could say something about it. And so I let it go. And now 20 something years later, it still bothers me because I should have said something about it. Um, I should have drawn attention to the fact that we don't need to talk about this. Um, It has nothing to do with the patient's care or the care they're receiving. Um, As uh, nurses in a pediatric hospital, we have to provide care to the whole family. And so it's important to know who the family is to the individual, but we don't need to do it in a gossipy sort of way. And so that was really my first sort of light bulb moment that not everybody is providing inclusive care. And that family wasn't on our ward for a very long time for a good reason. The child got better and was discharged home, but it really sort of put that, that flag in my head that why did that happen? Why in this, yes, it was, you know, not current, but why are we as nurses still doing this? And so it stuck with me and it kind of grew and just really made me want to advocate and really look at why do individuals and their families who identify as 2SLGBTQ continue to experience barriers accessing healthcare. And so that really was the start of why I started doing all of this work. Thanks so much for sharing that story. I think all of us have been in situations where we wanted to have the courage to stand up and and we didn't. And uh, I'm hoping that this conversation today will will give all of us some of that courage that we need to just say, hey, there's something that doesn't feel right here. From that, we can see, it seems to me what you're saying is people were uncomfortable. Um, it was a source of gossip for um Maybe people didn't know what to do with that information. That there, but that language also conveys a lot of he- uh, hidden assumptions mm-hmm. uh, that we hold about what a family should look like, what a person should be, and there's a lot of hidden assumptions, hidden assumptions around heteronormativity. Um, can you talk a little bit about how that you know is evident in in your experience? The yeah. assumptions, the assumptions, I guess, the harmful assumptions that we we carry around that affect our talk. Yeah. And so I think one of the, the biggest things that all of us carry around are assumptions and our implicit biases that we carry. Whether we know they're there or we don't know they're there is 
something. And as nurses, I think we need to be reflective of this. And I'm going to bring back that reflective practice that we should all be doing as nurses. And when we talk about assumptions, we can have assumptions that we are conscious of or that we are unconscious of. And and assumptions and our biases are things that we develop from childhood all the way up to our current day-to-day life. And these things can be right or wrong or a mix of both. And they can be harmful. It is not necessarily our fault that we have these assumptions and our biases, but what is our fault and what we do need to take responsibility for is if we don't check our assumptions and our biases as nurses um, and take responsibility for them. So what that means is that if we are not aware that we potentially have assumptions about what we think about same-sex relationships or transgender individuals, it can harm the care that we're providing to our patients or the care that we are giving. It can create toxic work environments. It can create unsafe care. And so it is something that we need to be aware of so that we can acknowledge it and work through it or address it so that we are not bringing those toxic and um, negative things to the workplace or to our care. And that is the work we have to do to be able to provide culturally humble care and provide um, sensitive care when we are working. And so working with individuals, if we are only looking through a heteronormative cisgender lens to break down those words. So heteronormative means that we feel that the normal is heterosexual. So people who are in uh, heterosexual relationships. So if we look at a family, it has to have a mom and a dad and anything that's not that is not considered normal. Um, That is a heteronormative lens. Um, And if we have that lens that we're looking through, that is a distorted lens to look at, especially through through healthcare. And through the exact exact same sort of thought, um, looking through the world through a cisgendered lens. So cisgender is your your, uh, cisgender, so same gender. So if you are have your sex at birth is female and you identify as a as a female gender that is a cisgender if you view that your that everyone who is born female is female and that transgender does not exist or should not exist you are looking at everything through a cisgendered lens again that is a distorted view of what our world is and should be um that is not an inclusive diverse Uh, lens, and that can put a real distortion on the care that you are providing to individuals. Thanks for explaining that. Um, I'm wondering if we could maybe talk about what does that look like when care is affected? What Mm -hmm. are the ways that 
our assumptions then that we bring to mm-hmm. our communication? What are the ways that that's manifested? Yeah, so I I give examples of how really quickly our assumptions can break down that nurse-client relationship. So we always talk about wanting our clients to trust us, um, nurses, except for um, the year of 9-11 when firefighters were the most trusted uh, provider. Uh, Nurses have always been the most trusted uh, providers. And we want to have that trust in in our relationships, but we can very easily break that trust. And ways of breaking that trust are obviously doing something wrong and making an error, but also saying the wrong thing. So um, I always talk to my students about putting your foot in the mouth, right? You say something wrong, you're going to break that down. So things like making an assumption about someone. So for example, if you have a same-sex females, sorry, a a female who's in a same-sex relationship, they are having sex with females. There is no way they could be pregnant unless they are going through a fertility treatment to get pregnant because they are not having sex with someone that produces sperm. So in nursing school, we teach that lower abdominal pain, having an x-ray, You need to assume they're pregnant until other, you know, proven otherwise, right? So you ask someone, any chance, you know, you could be pregnant? Are you sexually active? Yes. Any chance you could be pregnant? No. Are you using protection? No. Well, then how do you know you're not pregnant? Well, you have just made an assumption that they are having sex with someone that produces sperm. How do you think that person sitting in the chair feels. Do you think they are going to out themselves as being in a same-sex relationship? They might. You might have made them really angry. You might. But they might just pretend and be embarrassed and be like, okay, maybe I could be pregnant. Do the pregnancy test on me. Because it's easier to just do that. But you've broken that therapeutic trust, and you've made an assumption about the patient. Another really common assumption that we make is in pediatric facilities, when you see two same-sex parents in a room with a child, often you assume one of them is a parent and the other one is an other, a friend, an aunt or an uncle. And it's not a good assumption. It's incredibly offensive to that parent, but you make you've made that assumption. We make that assumption in long-term care facilities all the time when there's same-sex couples that it's their friend. It's not their spouse or their partner of 50, 60 years. It's their friend. Um, And so these assumptions that we've made without asking the patient can be very detrimental to that nurse-client relationship. Those are just some examples. Thank you for those. And I suppose the same would be true in situations where there's serious illness, anytime that there's someone accompanying another for uh, diagnosis, uh, care that we make those. I'm wondering if some of the administrative forms that we have, uh, some of the structures that we have built into our systems of care, perhaps even some of our documentation 
um, checklists, uh, etc. Do those contribute in any way to this as well? Yeah. So we actually have a very binary health care system. So our healthcare system is very um, male, female, you're one or the other. So from a very cisgendered place. So for individuals who identify as uh, transgender, gender non-conforming, non-binary, um, when you enter into the healthcare system, you have to check a box. And so if you don't fit in that box, what do you check? Um, if your name does not match what is on your health card, uh, how do you access, you know, health services? What if you're misgendered or misnamed? You know, does does your intake forms, do your forms allow for other names to be used? Do your forms, do your records allow for you to put down your preferred name, um, to put down your gender, to put down your partner's information? Do, the, do your forms say mother and father or do they just say parent? Um, do they say things like that? Um, a lot of our forms are very heteronormative and they they do cause a problem um, for things like that. So that that is also a, a question that I do get uh, people to reflect on when I'm I'm getting them to think about creating inclusive healthcare environments is is your unit, is your uh, hospital or, or health organization actually inclusive to, to us LGBTQ individuals? If they walk in the door, would they actually feel like it's a safe space for them to be in? So could we talk about that? What are the ways that people would understand that it is a safe place? So there are things that you can do. Um, so obviously signage. So it's not just as easy as putting up a sign that says, you know, a rainbow sign. I mean, that obviously is something that you can do, but if you put the sign up, you have to be able to deliver. So you have to have an inclusive staff that will be able to uh, be welcoming and be able to use inclusive language and be not working with assumptions and that sort of thing. So, you know, organizations do have to invest in having their staff trained in EDI and safe space, but things like having inclusive forms and EMRs, um, signage, but, you know, things like if you have posters up, you know, and you have posters of a family, it doesn't always have to be uh, a male and a female and two kids. It, it, it can be a same-sex couple who are comforting each other. It doesn't have to be a male and a female holding hands. Um, you should have gender neutral washrooms or all-inclusive washrooms because in healthcare, we do ask our patients to give us, you know, samples and, you know, where are we going to ask them to go to the bathroom to give us that sample? Um, is it going to be safe for them to go to the washroom? These are things that we need to do to make sure that patients feel safe to get the healthcare that they need. Um, and, you know, especially when we're dealing with, you know, serious illnesses, we need to think about things like if our patients can't talk for themselves, who is it that is actually talking for them? There has been, you know, cases and situations where who is their 
power of attorney versus their medical power of attorney versus, you know, who can make decisions because there, there's been cases of individuals, you know, who identify as transgender, whose parents or family do not support or recognize their trans identity. And they've been in traumatic accidents or uh, end of life care. And they have had to go through that care being misgendered or having their birth name being used because that's what's on their health card because their family doesn't advocate for them because their family doesn't didn't support their trans status and they couldn't advocate for themselves and their partner who did advocate for them wasn't welcome there because their partner isn't recognized or situations where someone who was in a long-term same-sex relationship but never married is in an end-of-life situation and the family comes in who is next of kin and makes all the decisions and the partner of so many years is no longer recognized and their voice is lost. And so as nurses, I think we need to recognize these situations because they are still happening in healthcare where two LGBTQ individuals who can't advocate or speak for themselves oftentimes don't get their voices heard. Um, and the people who are trying to advocate for them don't get to advocate for them because they potentially are also not having their voices heard because the people who can are speaking very loudly and not necessarily are the ones that have the patient's best interest at heart. And I think as nurses, we have a role to say, you know, maybe we should be looking at what the patient would want and not necessarily there's, the, you know, for, for an example, you know, a patient getting life support who whose partner was advocating for them to still continue to get their transition hormones because it was very important for them. Um, and the family didn't want them to get their hormones. The medical staff stopped their hormone therapy because the family didn't want them to have their hormone therapy. And, um, you know, that's that's a huge thing because this patient fought for years and years to get access to hormone therapy. And then when they lost their voice um, because they were intubated and, and sedated, you know, that was, that right was taken away from them. And so it's things like that, that as nurses, we should recognize these things and continue to advocate for them. I, I know I got a little bit off topic there, Pat, but. No, no. Uh, I, I think this is very, very important. Um, and these are the things that we need to be thinking about when we're talking about relationship building and breaking trust um, and being patient-centered in mm -hmm. our communication. So are you able to give an example of like, what would a nurse say that would actually have potential to change that dynamic in that kind of situation? Because I can think that people might say, well, I have to do, you know, what's legally right or something like that. So what is it that could be said that would then still be considered patient-centered, allowing that voice to be heard? So I think it, I think, yeah, and it depends on the situation. And I think it's, so for example, you know, we talk always about, you know, it doesn't matter if the patient is trans, identifies as trans or not. You know, we have patients who aren't transgender, you know, think about, you know, our little uh, Mrs. White in long-term care, you know, Betty, you know, 
she, her, her real name is, you know, Elizabeth, but don't you dare call her Elizabeth. She wants to be Betty. You know, you call her Betty. Cause that's what, <laughs> you know, I, I remember this lady from when I worked in the long-term care, you don't, you never called her Mrs. You called her Betty. Cause that was, you didn't mess with her. That was just her name. And, you know, I think if you had a patient and I'm, this is not a, a real patient, I'm going to make this up because, but, you know, if you were caring for um, a transgender patient who was intubated and sedated, and you knew that their health card did not show their name and they used the name John um, and their health card showed a female name, there's evidence that patients still hear you when they are sedated. So you should be advocating and using their name. You should be calling them John and you should be advocating for the people around you and for the doctors and the other medical staff and healthcare staff to be using the patient's name. That's their name. And it doesn't matter that that's not what's on the health card anymore. Like that's their name. You wouldn't not do that for any other patient. So I don't think it matters that the, but for some reason with trans patients, we get a little uncomfortable. And the second someone challenges us on it, we back off. But I think we should advocate for that. And the same thing is, is, you know, John's on testosterone and he gets his testosterone shot every Monday. Why shouldn't he get his testosterone shot while he's in the hospital? There's no reason why he shouldn't get that. And my role um, is in primary care, but I've had a lot of partners call me and say, so-and-so's in the hospital. You know, they went in for something. Thankfully, it's never been a traumatic accident, but I've I've had a couple of patients that have had gone in for routine surgery or they had a mental health crisis that they've been admitted. And I've had their their partners call me visibly upset that they're de- they're being denied their hormones while they're in the hospital. And I've had to call the hospital and be like, why are they not getting their hormone? Like, wh- why? Like, John's on, John's on testosterone. He gets it every Monday. It's Wednesday. Why do, why did he not get his testosterone on Monday? And they'll be like, well, he's in the hospital. He doesn't need it while he's in the hospital. Yeah, yes, he does. Like, it's, it's life. And I'm always talking to the nurses. The doctors don't, you know, and, and I'll say like, it's, it's, he fought for so long to get access to his testosterone. Like he he needs it. We can advocate for these, these patients. And you know, those are just, those are some examples again. Thanks. Thank you for that example. Um, We talk about advocacy so much as nurses, we, we are advocates. That's a major part of our role. But I think that you're describing something where people might not have thought of uh, in serious situations and illness, the advocacy for continued hormone therapy when Mm -hmm. someone is ill. And that's another dimension to advocacy that we need to be aware of. We don't usually hear about the need to advocate for continuing medication. Mm -hmm. Uh, because those decisions are 
uh, not not seen as uh, within the nursing role, perhaps. Mm-hmm. So this is, I think that's a very really interesting point that you're raising. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So one of the things that, again, I try to do in my my role in helping nurses understand sort of how we can help, you know, gender diverse and trans individuals is for not everybody, but for the majority of trans and and gender diverse individuals, access to hormone therapy is life-saving treatment. They have jumped through a lot of barriers usually to get access to it. So taking it away from them, even in a serious illness is not okay. And so it doesn't matter (laughs) if they, you know, and let, I mean, obviously if, we need to hold it. Like I do a lot of work with them about, okay, well, we need to hold your medicine for a week because you're having surgery. They, they understand that, but you know, for the majority of times, if they're in the hospital for a prolonged illness, like they, you know, they've had a really bad infection or they have pneumonia or they have a mental health crisis and they're in the hospital. Um, they need their medicine. It's no different than needing their thyroid medicine or, needing their inhalers, you know, this is medicine they need. And as nurses, we, we should be advocating for it. It's not, you know, it's not their multivitamin that can just be stopped because they've been admitted to the hospital. So it's just a different form of, of advocacy. Yes. And the label that you put on it as Mm life-saving is also important, I think, because that's, uh, that's a recognition of its critical nature versus uh, something nice that people just choose to do mm-hmm. and, you know, don't need. So uh, certainly that's another way to frame that, that would influence people's conversations, I think, mm-hmm. uh, life-saving. Many times here when we've talked about the ways that we break trust. What happens when a nurse recognizes that they have, as you coined earlier in the conversation, put your foot in it, that uh, what's your advice when we get it wrong, when we get it wrong and we know it? I think apologize. And I think acknowledge Um, everyone's human and we all do it. And for the most part, I think people forgive. I think if you acknowledge, acknowledge that you're going to learn from it and just say, I'm sorry, I didn't, I made an assumption. Can we fix this? Can we move past this? I, I, I've made a note. I'm not going to, you know, like with the, pre- the pregnancy assumption, you know, yes. um, you yelled at me, <laughs> you yelled at me. I get it. I, I've made a note. Mm-hmm. We're not going <laughs> to, you know, you won't be asked, but our sexuality is fluid. So you will be asked if you're sexually active and if you're having sex with people who produce eggs or sperm in the future. Because if you are having sex with someone that produces sperm, there could be a chance that you are pregnant in the future. So I do need to ask, but I am going to ask you in a more inclusive, non assumption, assumptive way. Um, is that okay? And hopefully by being honest and by 
you know, trying to show that you are learning, that that fixes it. And, you know, I, I put my foot in my mouth sometimes, you know, it's, you know, you can make a mistake. So for, for example, um, my EMR, my electronic medical record is not perfect at all. There, it, it um, puts the patient in by their, what's on their health card. So if my patient's name is different than what is on their health card, I have to put their, their name, their preferred name beside it. So both names are there, but because things go through for OHIP and I need things to be covered on OHIP, it has to have what's on their OHIP card there as well. If I'm doing 75 things at the same time, if I look in the wrong spot, I might see what's names on the OHIP card. If I, and I've done it and I've called them the wrong name, they will get mad at me and they know I know better and they will call me out on it and tear a strip off me, but I will apologize. And usually it makes it better, but you have to be humble enough to own your mistake and to apologize. I'm wondering if we can spend a few minutes talking about this resource that you've created. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because I think that people might find it useful as as a way to help educate themselves uh, around not just perhaps communication, but can you, can you talk about that for a little while? Sure. So it's, um, it's called the sexual orientation and gender identity e-learning toolkit. Um, It's online. It's uh, free to access, but you do have to log in um, to create a little account. It's just because you get a certificate at the end. Um, And so the reason there's a certificate is because um, if you are a practicing nurse, you can put it in your uh, learning plan because you should all be doing a learning plan. Um, (laughs) uh, And sometimes uh, professors use it in courses. So then they want their students to have the certificate. So that's why you have to log in. Um, But what it is, is it's an online resource with a variety of different um, modules. And so there's some recorded lectures um, that you can watch. So there's one about how to have a culturally humble practice. There's also one about doing an inclusive health assessment uh, from the perspective of doing a health, uh, taking a history and doing an assessment on someone who identifies as 2S LGBTQ. And then the really unique aspect of the website is that there's a series of virtual simulations. And so virtual simulations are clinical encounters um, that play out virtually. So you are actually seeing the clinical encounter from the perspective of the nurse. Thank you for that. And what is the website for that? If so people wanted to go to it. Yeah. So it's um, www.sogi.nursing.ca. So SOGI is sexual orientation, gender identity, nursing.ca. Thank you. Uh, that's a that's a great resource uh, for students and nurses, and uh, I encourage everyone to to have a look at that. Erin, it's been amazing having this time with you today and the opportunity to talk about a very important topic that 
we it seems so simple um but of course is not and uh i don't know if you had any parting thoughts in terms of building relationships and- i think i think the big thing is just to always think that you just want to be open and accepting and listen so you know ask questions um if you're not sure ask a clarifying question right just don't make assumptions it's okay to ask a question um and i think our patients would rather you ask um than for you to pass judgment on them i think being able to create safe clinical environments is really a priority not just for caring for the 2S LGBTQ environment, but really for all of our patients, because every patient deserves to be in an environment where they're respected and feel that they are safe. Yes. And and I've heard you say uh, a lot about our assumptions. And one is to really look deeply to recognize what they are. Um, I think that's that's one of the challenges that you've that you've laid down for us today as well. Thanks for listening. You can reach me or information about this episode on our website, www.radicalnursetalk.com. The producer editor of this podcast is Jeremy Ramos Foley, social media by Amy Strachan. And if you'd like to support the show, please rate, review, and subscribe. Join me next week for more Radical Nurse Talk. In the meantime, have a radical conversation in your practice. It can change lives.